0: I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live or our podcast. Mascuzzi, getting this thing. Yeah, that Italian, right? It's hard to get the Italian out of you once you go. Tanya, how many people I said mescusi to or grazie mille over the last couple weeks? It's been a lot. How's everybody doing? Good. Yeah? We're in the cafeteria today. Um, this week and next week, the school has stuff going on um, in our normal room over there. They're setting up a like a haunted house or whatever. So we get kicked out of here a couple times a year. It's cool, right? This kind of reminds me actually of the um, when we went over to Rose about the blue floors, a little bit wider in the room. Yeah. How are we? Yeah? Good weeks? Okay weeks? Okay, let's do it. Uh, Who had a great week? Nice. Who had an alright week? Right. Who had a crappy week? Okay. At least we're in community. (sighs) And God is faithful. (laughs) It's my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. I'm eager to preach this morning. I hope you're eager to hear me preach this morning. Otherwise, you can play on Instagram and act like you're taking notes. I won't know the difference. Just give me a nod every once in a while, you know. Act like you're paying attention. That's good. We are in in October. Our October sermon series, Love Your Neighbor. Uh, Nick started us off this month with a a challenging message on the greatest commandments. It's good. It was good. Last week, I preached a message on circumcision and the church's responsibility to extravagant inclusivity. I encourage you to go back and listen to the messages if you weren't able to catch them. Today, I want to come at loving your neighbor through the lens of favoritism. Relationships we're drawn to and relationships we tend to avoid. My message this morning is entitled, Favoritism, the Way of the Parasite. And here's my plan. I want to talk about playing favorites. And how favoritism causes us to live like parasites while Jesus' invitation is for us to become a living blessing. And here's the core of what I hope you sit with. Your tolerance for favoritism will determine whether you siphon life or give it away. In your personal life, your tolerance for favoritism will determine whether you siphon life or give it away. You know, I find it fascinating that we learn discrimination at a young age. We learn to pick favorites and then to line up our lives with them. I think back to elementary school. I remember vividly, fifth grade, bringing my soccer ball to school every single day. I loved it, like we had a group of guys, we'd throw back our lunches that our moms made us, and we would sprint out to the field, we'd pick captains, and the captains would pick teams, and I, you might be able to guess where I'm going with this, there were always guys that were picked last. They were good guys, but they were slow, or they didn't understand the game very well, or they played like they had two left feet, you know, kind of like running in circles awkwardly. And at that age, you learn, you're learning how, how, how good it feels to win, how crappy it feels to lose. So if Davey, my buddy, is going to prevent me from winning, while he may be my friend, he's not going to be on my team today. And that, that sounds petty, and it sounds childish, and it, it is, but many of us never really grow out of this behavior. In fact, we seem to refine this skill the older we get. I want to win. I want to feel good. And if you can't help me get there, I'm going to find someone who can. And it's not just limited to profit or gain. It also includes comfort. You know what I'm talking about. Like, let's say you're flying southwest. So you get to pick your own seat, like, as you walk on the plane, right? Two open seats left. The first is next to a petite woman. She puts on Bose headphones, and she throws a sleeping pill back. The other seat that's left, it's a large bearded man in a tank top, and he's opening up a cheese plate, and he's popping open a Red Bull. Who do you choose to sit by? It's not even really a question, right? The petite woman will likely leave you alone. She's not even really touching the arm net, armrest next to her. Stinky cheese man is overflowing into the next seat, and he seems like he's going to talk, like talk your, your ear off the entire flight with his feet breath. Most likely, we wouldn't even have to think about what seat we're going to select here. This is going to be a reaction. The reason is we've learned to link ourselves up with people who can benefit us. People who provide for us a level of comfort when we're in their company. A level of convenience as a result of their company. And the opposite, we've learned to distance ourselves from people who will drain us. Of energy, of our resources, and people who will provide inconvenience for us as a result of their company. And you know where this effect is magnified? LA. This city, it shoots adrenaline into choosing favorites, into linking your life up with people who can benefit you and distancing yourself from people who can't. And we even have a cool LA name for it, networking. You're only valuable in this city if you can benefit someone else. And obviously, this is not limited to LA. We, no matter, I mean, we find ourselves in different environments, in different relational systems over time. Our petty desires, our selfish impulses are still going to manifest. They're still going to reveal their ugly faces. We want comfort. We want convenience. We want profit. We want esteem. And we play favorites in order to achieve it all. Like parasites, we learn to find organisms that are going to offer us life rather than require life from us. But I hope to cause you today to question your impulses. What kind of life do you wanna live? Because your tolerance for favoritism will determine whether you siphon life or whether you give it away. I think this is really important because favoritism isn't, isn't just a, a fifth grade soccer game issue. It's actually quite potent in adult relationships. Today, I want to show you what Scripture has to say about it. If you brought your Bible or your Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of James. James is towards the back of the book. I'm going to be teaching that James chapter 2. book of James was most likely written by the brother of Jesus, so he gets a little street cred for that. we got Bibles in the back on the table. I'm going to have the text up here as well. This is James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He writes my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, "Here's a good seat for you," but say to the poor man, "You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet," have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is not the rich who are exploiting? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they? Not, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. All right, we're going to work through this section verse by verse, because I want to show you how incredibly relevant this text is to our context. I want to start out by identifying who James is writing to. My brothers and sisters... The context here is family. This is really important we get this because it heavily influences our inclination to choose favorites. The context is family. As followers of Jesus, Whew. distraction is the drug of L.A. Okay. The context here is the family. As, as followers of Jesus, we've been adopted into the family of God. We're cherished daughters, honored sons, Beloved children of a heavenly father. Church as family is the relational structure holding this thing together. And then out of that, James writes, Believers in Jesus must not show favoritism. Preferential treatment, bias, discrimination, no matter the reason. Wealth, appearance, social status, difference in beliefs or values. This is not how believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ treat people. You see, James is writing in a time that's saturated with prejudice. It's just drenched in hatred because of gender and class and ethnicity and nationality and religious background. People are categorized and people are labeled, and James is reminding them at the core of Jesus's invitation to follow him is a call to break down the walls that divide humanity. Faith in Jesus Christ and favoritism adamantly oppose each other. And so James gives this little illustration that could happen in any local church gathering, similar to us showing up here on a Sunday morning. Two strangers arrive. One is clearly wealthy because of his clothes, because of his jewelry. The other is clearly poor. One in rings, one in rags. And James says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated? Are you not judging with evil thoughts? Now, I I think we're a pretty friendly church. I think generally people are honored when they walk in these doors. And I've never seen someone in our church make someone else sit at their feet at a Sunday gathering. Doc might try to do that to you. But I haven't seen that happen yet. However, I've been attending church since I was born. I'm not joking. Like my mom went into, into labor with me in a small group meeting I know the moves church people use to avoid sitting next to people they don't want to sit next to, to avoid being in conversation that they don't want to be in conversation with. Oh, you need help setting up chairs right now? Yeah, let me help you out, my brother. I'll get back I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you in a little bit. Or I need to go to the connection table right now because I need to tithe, you know. Sacrifice. I know sometimes I got to cut off conversation with people because I got to give, or I'm sorry, I need to go pray with someone right now. Just excuse me. And I, I mean, I'm I'm using a little bit of hyperbolic humor here, but the point to be made is if we think favoritism doesn't show up in this community, we're in denial. It's it's a human nature thing. Of course, it shows up here too. And notice the difference in language that James uses. He says, "Here's a good seat for you," versus "You stand there." He's exposing this here versus there, a we versus they mode of ordering the world. Because in the body of Christ, in the church family, there is no we and they. There is no us and them. There's only us. There's only shared humanity. And James calls it like it is. If this is how you're treating people in your place of worship, you're discriminating. You're judging people with evil thoughts. And this type of favoritism is incompatible with faith. They cannot go together because, verse 5, has not God chosen those poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he promised those? Even though humanity's default setting is to be partial to the rich, God doesn't act this way. Just look at the team that Jesus put together. Look at the people that he spent the most time with exceptionally needy people, screw ups rejects, outcasts, ragamuffins. The kingdom of God is not built on wealth. It's not built on prestige. It's not built on popularity or power. The kingdom of God is built on service. It's built on on humility, on, on an extravagant love for neighbor. So don't dishonor the poor. All humanity is made in the image of God. Every soul, Bears the mark of their creator. And James writes, yet you discriminate, so you're discriminating against people who have less. You show favoritism to those who have money, but don't you realize they're abusing you with it? Essentially, he's making the argument here even inside your screwed up little minds, even inside your screwed up worldview, this doesn't make sense. You're giving preferential treatment to the rich and they're exploiting you. So do right by keeping the royal law. And this is the nickname James gives to one of Jesus' commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law, love God, love yourself, love neighbor. This sums up God's expectation for us as his church. And then he says, if you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, I think this is really clever Because it's almost as if James anticipates that some people are going to defend their their preferential treatment to the rich, their favoritism towards the rich, by saying, I'm just loving my neighbor well. Love my neighbor as myself, right? Sure, I'm great at this. Good morning, my good sir, with the flashy rings, come sit here by me. James says, you can't excuse your favoritism by arguing that you're just fulfilling the law of God by loving your neighbor as yourself. Because the problem wasn't showing kindness to the rich. The problem was that they were showing partiality to the rich, which exposed their lack of kindness to the poor. So James is shooting straight with them. The poor are just as much your neighbors as the rich are. And then verse 10, if you keep the whole law but stumble in one area, you're guilty of breaking it all. The point he's making, breaking the law makes you a lawbreaker. Now this notion might seem a little extreme for us. Like, you commit a minor offense doesn't mean you should have the whole book thrown at you. Like, if you get a speeding ticket, you shouldn't get a DUI thrown at you either, right? But the religious law in their day, they had this much different understanding of it. They viewed the law, their, their, religious, their religious law, as a unified whole. And this thing determined their approach to life and relationships and worship. It was all integrated. It was, it was not compartmentalized Belgian waffles. It was tangled spaghetti. Spaghetti. The law and life, it was all one. The Hebrew word for the law, the Torah, the instruction, it taught them how to, how to live the good life, a life that was pleasing to God, and it was not to be compartmentalized, meaning you could no more break only a part of it than you could just break the stem of a, of a crystal wine glass. Think of like a, of a wine glass with a stem that's broken off. You might not have broken the reservoir, but the glass is broken now. This was, this was their approach to the law. What I love about this is is James is disarming any arguments for a kind of like selective obedience to God that I get to pick and choose which ones I'm going to follow and which ones I'm going to just safely disregard. You break one part, you break the whole. This is why you need Jesus, because he comes and he rescues you and he justifies you through his sacrifice. Favoritism is sin. It's a disruption of humanity's wholeness. It's a breakdown of of our intended relational created order, and it breaks everyone involved. Now, I like questions. I think questions take, or, take us deeper into truth. They take us deeper in, into meaning. They take us deeper into God. So at this point, I want to stop and ask, is favoritism actually prob- problematic? James calls it sin, but is it really that big of a deal? So what? I live my life next to the people I enjoy. I prefer specific individuals over other specific individuals. We choose friends. We choose best friends. We even choose people who we will marry. Aren't those justified versions of favoritism? And it's instinctual too, right? Everyone lives their lives this way. And it's how humanity has existed since the beginning of time. Besides simply hurting someone's feelings every once in a while, which matters, is is favoritism actually problematic? Now, I think what makes answering this question so difficult is that everyone has different interpretations for how to live the good life. Everyone has different interpretation or meaning for success. Some people think the goal is to siphon as, life, as much life as possible from others in order to advance their position, in order to advance their level of comfort. Other people believe that their life's purpose is to give away life as much as possible. So they're going to answer this very different. And to remind you, your tolerance for favoritism it's going to determine whether you siphon life or whether you give it away. The question you need to ask yourself is what kind of life do you want to live? One that sucks, sucks life, or one that causes other lives to flourish. And it's not, a simp- it's not simple to answer. It's not, just, it's not very simple to, to, to just address this issue because it's a very complex, complex issue. If, even if we want our life story, to be a story that's told, that, that's made others flourish, that's, caught, that's, that's shot life out from every possible arena and relationship. Even if I want that to be true, even if I want to give life away, we have to realize that favoritism is not actually the problem. It's symptomatic of the problem. And I'm going to show you what I mean. Let's say you wake up tomorrow morning, and next to your bed is an eight-foot snakeskin. Is the snake skin your problem? (laughs) It's terrifying, but the snake skin is not the issue, right? Your issue is that an eight-foot monster left that in your room for you. Favoritism is the snake skin. The monster is our inability to see others. Our problem is that we have been trained to overlook soul. We've been trained to overlook the human standing in front of us and merely see how they benefit us. We don't have a problem with favoritism. We have a problem with seeing, seeing soul, seeing neighbor. This is the eight-foot monster in the room. And what further complicates the issue is that this isn't just a bad habit that people pick up. It's not something we just learn at a young age. We have an enemy of our souls that's training us in viewing each other this way. So think of some of the great villains of our time. Darth Vader. Voldemort, the Joker, even the raptors from Jurassic Park. What are they great at? Strategic misdirection. Strategic misdirection or chess masters. They're skilled at getting their opponent looking at the wrong pieces. Strategic misdirection or magicians. Skilled at making you look where they want you to look so you miss what they want you to miss. Strategic misdirection. Why is favoritism problematic? Because it gets me focusing on the wrong thing. It gets me focusing on how I can profit from the soul in front of me rather than honor the soul in front of me. It gets me loving how my neighbor can benefit me rather than loving my neighbor. If all I see when I look at you is potential advantage... I will become more and more parasitic in my relationships, and I have to ask myself if I'm okay with that. What favoritism does is it roots another's inherent value, God-given worth in their appearance or their position or their net worth or their past decisions or their IQ or their social IQ, rather in the reality that they bear the mark of their creator, that each individual beholds the image of the divine in their DNA. My favoritism, my discrimination, my prejudice towards those who inconvenience my life. What that does is reveal a glaring inability to see what truly matters, the worth of my neighbor. And if I cannot see my neighbor as a soul, I will not love my neighbor as a soul. We've been trained in in viewing the world and each other through the lens of favoritism, and we've come to tolerate it, and we've even come to enjoy it. And this is why I think Jesus was so disturbing to the people that he hung out with, because they don't see and don't want to see how he does. Because for them, seeing someone as a something is worth it. It's acceptable, provided they get what they want in the end. But Jesus, oh, I love reading about Jesus. He has this capacity. He has this deeper awareness to see in others what they can't even see in themselves yet. And he calls it out. He sees their value. He sees their worth. And he calls it out of them. He draws it out of them. And this is precisely what Jesus invites his followers into. But favoritism, it whispers to our greed. It whispers to our consumerism. It whispers to our insecurities. It whispers to our resolve to get ahead of neighbor. I don't want to love neighbor. I want to beat neighbor. <laughs> Favoritism whispers into that. It breathes. It, it's like like, breathe, like blowing into the, the, the little sparks that might turn into a fire. And very simply, this is how it exposes itself. Favoritism shows up in our actions with other people, our interactions with other people in one of two ways, investing into specific relationships and distancing from specific relationships. Just like matter of fact, this is how it shows up. I'm going to invest in specific relationships, and I'm going to distance myself from other relationships. So what it does is it convinces me to invest time and energy into relationships that will benefit me positionally, financially, emotionally. I want to make deposits into interactions with people that will enhance my life. I want to invest into relationships that will offer me a sense of comfort in their company. They make me feel good. Our belief systems are similar. I enjoy conversation with them. I've been trained to view the world this way, to favor relationships with people who give me life and they elevate me. And then the opposite is true as well. Favoritism convinces me to distance myself from relationships that are going to cost me something. Positionally, financially, emotionally, I want to withhold myself from interactions with people that won't enhance my life. I want to avoid relationships that require me to offer something. I want to distance myself from people who don't make me feel good, people who have different value systems, different belief systems, who, who drain me emotionally, people I don't enjoy conversation with. And I've been trained to view the world this way, to reject relationship with people who want life from me and who need me to elevate them. And the more I exhibit this behavior and this worldview, the more I begin to tolerate it and the more it becomes my filter for life. That make sense? And when this framework for relationship becomes my framework, it wildly reveals my focusing on the wrong things, my missing soul. To put it different, favoritism is relational porn. You see, pornography objectifies a person into a collection of body parts. It depersonalizes the soul to be used for sexual gain. And what favoritism does is it objectifies a relationship to potential advantages. It depersonalizes neighbor to be used for relational gain. It's relational porn. It misses soul, and it reflects nothing of the way Jesus does life. It reflects nothing of the heart of Jesus. It stands so starkly in contrast to the way of Jesus. Favoritism, it it centers itself. There's a gravity that centers on project self. There's this hyper-consumeristic mindset that bleeds into all my relationships. Assist me. Invest in me. Comfort me. Hook me up, bro. But when we read scripture, we don't see Jesus obsessed with project self at all. We don't see him exhibit a hyper-consumeristic mindset that bleeds into all of his relationships. Invest in me, assist me, comfort me, hook me up, bro. Jesus resembles nothing of a parasite. His entire life, his entire ministry was this blessing, this living blessing unto others. A continuous, uninterrupted fountain offering life, offering hope, offering renewal. I mean, think about it. He leaves heaven, he becomes human, He serves humanity. He goes to the cross. He's murdered for humanity. It's a colossal inconvenience for him. His life, his way, they're completely and utterly for our gain, for our comfort, for our convenience. God gives of himself. God is love. This agape self-sacrificing for the good of the other. It's his way in the person of Jesus. God offers his time, his effort, his energy, his resources, his very life. And what he asks in return is that we do as he does. Love your neighbor. I hope to prod you to ask yourself, do you want to live your life in a way that constantly sucks life from others? Or do you want your life to give away life and to cause others to flourish? I want to invite Topher up. Um, before we go into our kind of a response time in worship, I want to just give a few suggestions for how we push back against favoritism. Because I don't think it's, it's helpful just to say, hey, here's a problem. I want to give some like, well, here's a couple ways we can push back against it, not just utterly get rid of it because it's, it's going to be in us. Just a few suggestions. How do we push back against favoritism? How do we push back against siphoning life? We have to go after the deeper problem. Not just clean up the snake skin on the floor. We have to go after the snake. Not just stop playing favorites. We have to to change how we see people. Because if we hope to love neighbor, we have to see neighbor first. So a few quick suggestions for pushing back against favoritism and leaning into seeing people. First, read the stories of Jesus often. Read the stories of Jesus often. Jesus is about as far from favoritism as it gets. You want to know what it looks like to not play favorites? You want to know what it looks like to avoid relational porn? Read about Jesus in the Gospels often. Open up your Bible and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John often. Watch how Jesus treats people. Watch how he speaks to people. Watch how Jesus offers himself to others rather than than asking others to offer themselves to him. He's constantly pouring out life. And to be candid, it kind of dumbfounds me that so many Christians all over America today will attach their name to Christ, or maybe Christ's name to theirs, yet they know nothing about Jesus. He's God. Yeah, the demons know that. He was crucified. Yeah, that was in the history books. What about the way he treated people that were outcasts? What type of things did he say to people that didn't believe in themselves? How did he respond to people that had nothing to offer him? Because who cares if you know Jesus' sandal size was, but you don't know his heart? It misses it. We resort to favoritism because we don't know how to see people as Jesus sees people. So in order to retrain our eyes, we read about Jesus often. Get in your Bible and read about him often. Another one, shift any they, them thinking to we, us. Any, anything in your mind that says they, them, we, us, shift that. This is an, an our thing. This is an us thing. It's much harder to ignore or deny companionship to another when you see them as a we. We makes their problem my problem. Us makes their pain my pain. When they are in need, when they are in trouble, when they're longing for companionship without family, without home, It's easy to turn them away. But when we're in need, in trouble, longing for companionship, without family, without home, we're far more likely to do something about it. So shift any they, them thinking to we, us. Another one, ask to hear a person's story. Ask to hear a person's story. Brendan Manning once told a story about a man that was riding on a train with a few kids, his kids and they were just running amok. They were just all over the place and crazy and another passenger finally frustrated. He had enough. He asked the man to get his kids in order and the father kindly apologized. He said, their mother had just died and they were all having a difficult time dealing with it. Right? A person's story can change the way you see them immensely. So find people that you're you're repulsed from, people that your favoritism inclination impulse is saying I, I'm not going to invest in that and go ask them their story go ask them what's going on in their life it might change the way you treat them and then last ask God to change how you see others ask God to change how you see others I believe changing our world depends on God changing our hearts It's the only way that we're going to learn to see as Jesus does. It's the only way we're going to learn to love neighbor. Learning to see people is the only way we're going to make a difference in our city. And if you don't know, our church does not exist merely to enjoy each other. We're here to bless our city. We're here to cause life to flourish here around us, not just inside this room, not just inside our tiny community. If we want to to resist becoming parasitic favoritists, We have to allow God to transform our hearts, to transform how we see people. And if we can allow God to change us there, we have a real chance at offering life to the individuals who make up our city. I want to invite up our prayers. Amanda. We're going to go into a time of response in worship, in prayer maybe in silence. I don't know what you need right now. I don't know what God's doing in your heart right now. What God might be doing in your heart right now might have nothing to do with what I just talked about, and that's awesome. What I want to challenge you with and prod you with is to respond to what God's doing in your heart. The small whisper that wasn't my voice that might have been happening in the back of your mind and just deep in your gut while I was preaching, what's going on there? What is God speaking right now? And if you're not sure, just receive from God. Maybe God just wants to love on you. If you need someone to stand with you in prayer, if you need someone to believe with you in prayer, if you need a miracle, if you need God to show up because there is deep pain or deep confusion, we have got two people who would love to pray with you this morning. And you can sing with Amanda and Topher if you want. You can let this song, this song be sung over you you can just rest in the fact that God is love and he doesn't play favorites with us. He continues to offer us life. So God, we we make ourselves present to you in this moment. We open our hearts, we open our minds, we open our ears and we say yes to the work that you're doing in us. We want to be a people that can love our neighbor. We want to be a people that can love our community, that can love our city well but Lord, we need to see people as you do. So I pray in this room, even in this moment, God, that you would shift our hearts as individuals, as a community, shift our hearts to see people as you do, to see their stories, to see their worth, beyond their mistakes, beyond their screw-ups, beyond the the idiosyncrasies that annoy us. God, give us courage to invest in people, to pour out life, and to experience the joy of, of pouring into another as you pour into us. God, we want that. So we make ourselves present to you this morning. Have your way in this moment, God, we pray. In Jesus' name.